0: Hi, this is Lisa Rudman at Making Contact. You know, it's time to put your money where your media is. Please support Making Contact today and click the Donate button at radioproject.org. That's radioproject.org for people-powered radio. Thank you, and here's the show. This week on Making Contact we take an unsentimental journey to a place that galvanized the push for racial justice during World War II.
1: All hell broke loose and there was just a lot of uh, confusion because glass was everywhere. Men were, you know, just in fear and some had ran all out in their bare feet and shorts. And it was just bedlam.
0: The Port Chicago Naval Magazine in Concord, California is less than 35 miles from where I live in Richmond, California. For most of my life, I had no idea what happened here. You and I are going to revisit the catastrophic events at Port Chicago. It's now the quiet site of a memorial to the people who worked and died there. Listen to the loud echoes of racial injustice and how they resonate still today. During World War II, Port Chicago in California was a weapons distribution center. This is where the U.S. Navy shipped explosives to the troops in the Pacific. Railroad cars delivered those weapons, and men using crowbars and wheelbarrows moved the loads from boxcars to cargo ships by hand. Black sailors, who'd completed basic training, thought they would move on to see combat. Instead they did the heavy lifting at Port Chicago while white commanding officers stood and watched. After the attack on Pearl Harbor, the Navy opened up its apprenticeship branch to blacks for the first time. They joined by the hundreds, not only hoping to achieve victory in war, but equality at home. Five men who remember working there tell their stories to Dan Collison and Elizabeth Meister. Let's begin. I believe, I believe, Uncle Sam can use me.
2: My name is Albert William, Jr. I enlisted in the Navy. When I was young, and back then there wasn't any jobs so available for us young black men at that time. And when the, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, I guess we felt much patriotic to our country because this is our country too, and we are uh, quite a few of us volunteer for the Navy.
1: My name is Robert Ralph Jr. I was 17 years old and had just completed the eighth grade, and I thought. My enlistment would help to make the country a better place for us Negroes. We didn't use the term uh, blacks in those days.
3: Ah, He said he needed me. I know he'll send me back home someday, I know. Bad boy.
4: My name is Joseph R. Randolph Small, senior. I was drafted by the Navy. I was drafted by the government, I should say. And uh, when I reported for duty, I was put in the
5: Navy. I was drafted. I was working at this uh, shipyard, and I refused to let them get me another deferment. So I wanted to go into service anyway. I wanted to see some parts of the world. Oh, my
6: name is Percy Robinson. I was drafted. And uh, when we came out of the boot training, which was from Great Lakes, most of us, a lot of us, wanted to go overseas and wanted to shoot, get into combat.
3: Well, airplanes flying across the land and sea. Everybody flying but a Negro like me, Uncle Sam said. Your place is on the ground When I fly my airplanes Don't want no Negro round The same thing for the Navy When ships go to sea All they got is a mess boy's job for me Uncle Sam says Keep on your apron, son You know I ain't gonna let you shoot my big
2: navy gun. We was uh, told that we would be stationed on ships, so we visioned ourselves at sea. I did because we we was trained. We was trained as sailors. I was trained as a gunner's mate. But when, when they shipped us out of Great Lakes Navy trained, we went on. Our, our first stop was post Chicago ammunition dump.
5: When I first got to Port Chicago, oh, dumpy-looking place, way back out there in the boondocks. And you was kind of disappointed to to see such a little dumpy-looking place at that time because uh, I really wanted to go out on the ship. But uh, they had a lot of ammunition stored there, though. (laughs) ¶¶ As the war in the Pacific increased
3: in tempo, the Port Chicago Naval Magazine became the largest and busiest on the West Coast. Each day, trains of high explosives arrived in the classification yards.
0: Freddie Meeks and the other sailors said, everyone worked in fear.
5: Oh, man, I tell you. I don't know, it made made you kind of nervous. You always was uneasy about handling all that ammunition. Uh, bombs, torpedoes, whatever.
1: We sent everything out of this, from to 30, 30 uh, rifle cottages all the way up to 2,000-pound blockbusters, we call them.
6: My job basically was to load ammunition with the crew which
5: worked in the hole of the ship. You be down in the hole. Here come them big bombs and things coming down the the rampway they had built. But uh, sometimes they let it come down too fast. And they hit together and they made a loud noise.
6: You hear this all night long. Boom, 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 boom,
5: boom. Yeah, you almost have a heart attack. And... So we used to ask them sometimes and say, is it any danger this ammunition explode? They say, oh, no, don't worry about it. Say, it's not live." Say, don't have no detonators in them.
4: We were told that it wasn't dangerous. We had no knowledge whatsoever of ammunition. And we just took the words of those that said it wasn't dangerous.
2: We was not trained to load ammunition. We would take ammunition, we'd take a crowbar, when we had to go so high. We'd take that crowbar and push that ammunition up there because they told us it would not explode because it didn't have no detonator in it. We believe
3: that. Got my long government letters, my time to go. When I got to the Army, found the same old Jim Crow Uncle Sam says, two camps for black and white. But when trouble starts, we'll all be in that same big fight.
6: All of the loaded crews were black. There were no white loaded crews.
1: You didn't have a lot of white people that you saw. We only had basically one officer, and he would be the only person white.
5: Well, you know, the white officers didn't have much to uh, do with us no more than to stand around and supervise and see that we uh, load that ammunition.
2: It was pressure. We was told that so much we had to be did that night. We have to do this so much. It was a rush, rush.
4: And the division commanders push the petty officers to push the men to load as much as they could, as fast as they could, but we knew they were betting $100 or so that my division would put on more ammunition than your division.
6: Each one would put up money that their division would outload the other one for those particular shifts or that particular day. They had day lotteries, week, and a whole ship lottery.
0: It was 1944. The United States was fighting fascism in World War II. Recruitment campaigns inspired men to enlist. All five of the men, Albert Williams, Freddie Meeks, Joseph Small, Percy Robinson, and Robert Routh were all stationed at Port Chicago during this time. They were among a group of African Americans who enlisted in the military because They believed their service would translate into equality and respect. Instead, they found racial segregation and dangerous working conditions. We heard Sailor Joe Small say that the officers placed bets on what division could load the most ammunition in the shortest time. Remember, none of those officers were black, but all of the men loading the cargo ships were black.
3: Frequently, the urgent need for ammunition forced the depot to load two ships at the same time, at the same pier. So it was on the night of July 17, 1944. The Quinault Victory and the E.A. Bryan were moored at the Naval Magazine, Port Chicago. Sixteen cars of ammunition and bombs were spotted on the pier beside the Quinault Victory, as the ship rigged to load. Bryan had been loading day and night for more than three days three and a half million pounds of explosives were aboard or waiting nearby on the pier.
0: Imagine more than three million pounds of explosives just sitting on a pier. Robert Routh recalls what happened that fateful night.
1: It was a Monday, a hot July day. And for some reason, the day was kind of a a day that I felt a great boarding, and and I don't know why. I had uh, pimples, you know, still being a teenager, so nightly I went, would go in and tidy myself up and put on Noxemer and got back to my locker, put my gear away, said my prayers, and leaped up. I had a top rack. I leaped up in the rack, and here comes the voice over the intercom system again. Lights out, quiet about the deck.
6: I'm laying there with my hands behind my ear, looking out the sky. I guess a few minutes after the lights went out, the sky lit up. And it's just like the sun rose. Everything was bright. You could see all the buildings.
1: Shortly after that, here comes the second explosion. (laughs) Filling the sky with all kinds of uh, lights and colors like at the 4th of July celebration. All hell broke loose. There was just a lot of uh, confusion because glass was everywhere. Men were, you know, just in fear, and some had ran all out in their bare feet and shorts, and it was just bedlam.
6: And a few seconds later, the second floor started to come down. You could hear the wood cracking and stuff. You could hear the people now screaming and yelling, get out of the barracks. It's coming down.
0: You're listening to a special radio documentary about the Port Chicago disaster on Making Contact and Radioproject.org. If you appreciate what you're hearing, please stay in touch. Sign up at our website, Radioproject.org. You can check out the links there about this little-known World War II disaster and racism in America. More at Radioproject.org. Many survivors suffered severe injuries. The explosion leveled buildings and turned the ships that stored the explosives into scraps of metal. 337 people, including 202 black sailors, lost their lives that day. Freddie could not forget.
5: That was a shocking thing to see those ships tore up and, and seeing I was standing watch over all those uh, dead bodies, I had to stand watch over that. That was my duty, and you couldn't tell one from the others.
0: Percy suffered severe injuries in the explosion. I think I was in the hospital maybe a week, and I think the day after
6: I returned to Melfield, we were ordered to go to work, and I still was bandaged up, face, arms. My stitches were still in everything. So we were lined up outside the barracks to go to work. They hadn't told us what we had to do yet. But then they said, forward march.
4: I was marching on the outside. I I called Cadence, something like this: Who left, who left, left, right, left. I believe it was Lieutenant DeLuca said, column left. And when he said column left, everybody stopped because column left meant we were going to the docks. And the docks meant loading ammunition. They told
2: us we had, they had a ship that had to be loaded, you know. They give us a automata. would you load ammunition?
0: The same kind of live ammunitions that set off the explosions. That's what the officers ordered the sailors to do. Load more of it, still without any training still the same danger.
2: That's the ultimate we had. And I told him myself, I say, I am absolutely afraid, which I were. I'm afraid to load ammunition. You step over there then. Then he called another one of my. I th- think he told them to s- ask them the same thing. You step over there. And when the end of the day was over, I think just about all of us had stepped over there, you know.
6: Then the Admiral came down and explained to us what our responsibilities were.
5: He told us, he said, well, one thing I want to tell you, that you could be charged with mutiny if you don't go back to work.
4: And he explained at that time, if we refused to go back to work, uh, he could have a shot.
5: That was the cue. When he said you could be shot... Then the fellas went to mumbling. You know, a lot of people, they feared the dark. But then, 50 of us decided we wasn't going to go back to work if we if were going to get shot. We just had to shoot us because we wasn't going to go back and load no more ammunition.
0: Nobody lined them up and shot. But what happened next blew up these black men's lives forever.
2: That's when we were arrested. I would say arrested because we was all shipped to, uh, I think it was Treasure Island. We was at the stockade. Then we was f- found out that we was charged with mutiny.
5: Well, the mutiny trial, <laughs> it's, just like, it's, it's just like a thing that is cut and dry. We all sitting over here, all the white officers over here. We wasn't allowed to say anything but whatever they would ask us.
2: They would call us one by one up there and testify, and everybody had almost the same story. Maybe that's why you thought we was, but that's the that's story we told them. I told them the same thing I told them then, that I told them when I was on the docks, that I was afraid of it, and I was afraid.
0: Thurgood Marshall, who at the time worked for the NAACP Defense Fund, came to the courthouse to stand with the group of defendants known as the Port Chicago 50. The media coverage was intense, and Marshall spoke with several news outlets. People recalled that Thurgood Marshall said,
7: quote, The accused men are being tried for mutiny solely because of their race and color. I can't understand why whenever more than one Negro disobeys an order, it is mutiny. This is not 50 men on trial for mutiny, This is the Navy on trial for its whole vicious policy towards Negroes. Negroes in the Navy don't mind loading ammunition. They just want to know why they are the only ones doing the loading.
0: After the Port Chicago 50 were convicted, Thurgood Marshall was quoted in the press as saying the verdict was a frame-up, quote,
7: Why were only blacks assigned to the task of loading munitions? Why had they not been trained for the task? Why were they forced to compete for speed? Why were they not given survivors leaves after the accident? And why had they not been allowed to rise in rank?
0: The Navy prosecutors argued that the men refused to obey orders. The sailors said they were afraid they would die if they returned to work in such a dangerous environment. They were charged with mutiny. The trial lasted six weeks. The all-white jury deliberated for 80 minutes, before returning with a verdict of guilty. All 50 men received sentences ranging from eight to 15 years in prison. All were dishonorably discharged from the Navy. Marshall started a public campaign to have the verdict overturned.
7: Justice can only be done in this case by a complete reversal of findings.
0: Marshall lost his appeal but public pressure caused the U.S. Secretary of the Navy, James Forrestal, to reduce the sentences of the Port Chicago 50 in 1946. And the United States began the process of desegregating its military. Robert Allen, a retired professor at the University of California, Berkeley, was interviewed by Berkeley News and said,
8: quote, The mutiny was an act of resistance, best understood in the context of other protests by African-American servicemen during wartime, and of the nationwide civil rights movement it foreshadowed.
0: Professor Allen said it was a racially segregated base, and the sailors were basically locked in a prison called Port Chicago Naval Depot. Those sailors later faced another kind of prison, Albert Williams continues the story.
2: I don't even remember crying behind it. I know I did after I got into prison for a while. But I just seemed like it was something that was going to happen then, after the trial. You know, after you sit in the trial for a few days and you you see what was going down.
4: 7 p.m. Eastern Wartime, Bob Trout reporting. The Japanese have accepted our terms fully. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the end of the Second World
3: War. The United Nations are united and are victorious.
2: Well, in the war it after it suspended our sentence, it had to release us. We get our discharge.
4: Joe Small. My discharge from the Navy prevented me from receiving jobs that I would have received as a civilian. It branded me as a person incapable of following orders.
0: Freddie Meeks.
5: I used to couldn't talk about it because it was hurt. It was hurt inside. You didn't want your friends to know that you was in the service and you had been charged with mutiny. You didn't want people to think that you... uh. You know, you didn't like your country or something, that you do something like that. That's the only country we knew about.
0: The Port Chicago disaster became a rallying point for what African Americans called the Double V Campaign fighting for democracy and human rights at home and overseas. Black civil rights leaders demanded equal treatment for all U.S. troops, regardless of race. Three years after the war ended, President Harry Truman desegregated the military. That desegregation order moved forward the Campaign for Equal Rights, fair opportunities and promotions for minority troops in the military. The last all-Black military unit was disbanded in 1954. But it took several more decades to pursue some form of justice for the Port Chicago sailors. In 1990, 25 U.S. Congresspeople campaigned to have the Black sailors' convictions overturned. Later, a Navy review panel upheld the convictions, stating that racial discrimination was not the reason for the verdicts. They did say that assigning black sailors to manual labor was motivated by the mistaken belief that blacks were intellectually inferior. (music) Professor Robert Allen's book resurrected public interest and political efforts to remember Port Chicago. Congressional representatives pushed for a memorial at the site of the explosion and President Bill Clinton pardoned veteran Freddie Meeks. But Allen said, that's not enough. Quote,
8: So far the Navy has refused to exonerate the sailors, and although none of the 50 are still alive, it would be important to the families to remove this stigma. It's also important to the nation. We could say, okay, these guys did something that was technically illegal, but they did it in a way that brought about change for the better, just as the civil rights activists did in the South. The government may not necessarily want to paint them as heroes, but it would no longer paint them as demons. When we look at the process of desegregation in the military, one of its sources is what happened at Port Chicago. We should stop penalizing these sailors for having done something that we now recognize was for the benefit of the country.
0: The story of Port Chicago is about more than just an explosion that took hundreds of lives and scarred so many others. It's also about how those men lived how they hoped their military service would help to end racial discrimination in the country they loved. I'll let Joe Small have the last word.
4: I was fighting for something. And if you would ask me to put a name on it, I don't know. But things were not right. And it was my desire to make things right. I have never felt ashamed of the decisions that I made. I did what I thought was best, and I did it in the best way I knew how.
0: That brings us to the end of this episode of Making Contact. For more information, you'll find links about Port Chicago at radioproject.org. Special thanks to Dan Collison and Elizabeth Meister at Long Haul Productions for allowing us to use excerpts from their radio feature, The Port Chicago 50, and Oral History, including the voices of Black Navy veterans, Albert Williams, Freddie Meeks, Joseph Small, Percy Robinson, and Robert Routh. The men have all passed away but what remains is their story and their stance. The music you heard was Uncle Sam Says. Joseph White wrote and recorded it during World War II. You also heard In the Army Now, written by Bill Bonzi, who recorded the song in 1941. Thanks to script editor Cheryl Duvall, audio mixer Anita Johnson, and executive producer Lisa Rudman. Thanks to Steve Grievous for the reenactment of the voice of Thurgood Marshall and Franklin Sterling for reenacting the voice of Professor Robert Allen. I'm Teresa Adams. Thank you for listening to Making Contact.